Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. We live in a world that loves to assign value to stuff. Determining the worth of an item is something that people are constantly doing, and more often than not, it's calculated in some sort of dollar amount. We measure almost everything to according to how many dollars it might take to possess it. And so, a man lives in a million-dollar home, or he has a $100,000 pickup truck. Uh, his meal at that restaurant would amount to $500 a plate. He wears a $1,000 suit, and his wife carries a $2,000 purse. And many people in the world would say that this person is well-to-do, and that since he has all these nice things, he has a good life. And what does this mean to the person, though, who lives in a shack, drives a beater, wears clothes off the rack at goodwill, and can barely afford to feed his family? Is his life bad? Does it have less value or quality to it? How do we answer such a question in a world that is so possessed and driven by material wealth? As we look at everything around us and see everything is measured by how much money it takes to obtain it, everything from a quality education to the defense of our nation is not measured in outcomes, but in dollars. Even the church will do this. I remember when I was a younger man, hearing my church back in Texas was building a new sanctuary. And it was a great big event, that years of capital campaigning and building and all these things. And this would be the place where God's people would gather to worship Him. It would be where heaven comes down to earth for the comfort of sinners. And when it was all built and done and dedicated, how did people assign value to the new building? They said, look at our brand new $10 million sanctuary. They did it with a dollar amount. Then they would convince themselves that the congregation was healthy and good based on the dollar amount. As if the place had more or less value because the dollar amount attached to it rather than the God who was worshipped in it. And while it is by no means a sin to spend money on the place where God's people worship, on the contrary, it's a beautiful thing to make the worship space beautiful, to make it where it can accommodate the people who gather there. It is wrong to say the value of the place is measured in how much money was poured into it. What does it say about the congregation that gathers in a small sanctuary in need of repair? Or what about the congregation that must gather in someone's living room? Are not these places of the same value to those who gather there? Are they not the same importance to the God who ministers to the people there? And for no other reason than the God who is worshipped and the grace that is poured out upon the people is the same God and the same grace. See, Jesus is teaching his disciples today about the love of money and about the disordered cares that it can produce in this life. As Jesus begins to talk about the devotion that we will have for whatever master we end up serving, 
As he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And what is Jesus saying here? But he's saying that we should forsake all modern money, revert to a barter system, choose a life of poverty. What does Jesus mean when he says you cannot serve God and money? And the word for money actually is an old Aramaic word. It's mammon. And mammon's more than just dollars, more than cash, more than a figure in a bank account statement. Mammon is a word that signifies material wealth and possessions in all the forms they are in this life. It's the accumulation of stuff that we gather in this life. Some of it we need, much of it we probably don't. And the problem arises that when we place all of our hope in mammon to bless our lives, we put hope in mammon to secure our futures, we hope in mammon to bring us happiness. The first commandment teaches us you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. So what does it mean to fear, love, and trust something? To fear losing it. To expect the greatest good and blessing to come from it. To know that your future is secure in having it. Well, Martin Luther, he defines it this way in the large catechism. He says, a God means that from which we are all expected to receive good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress, so that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and to believe him from the whole heart, as I have often said, that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust be right, then is your God also true. And on the other hand, if your trust be wrong and false, then you have not the true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. That now I say upon which you set your heart and put your trust in properly, that is your God. And looking at things this way, we can see that for many, their God is mammon. It is what they fear losing. It's what they expect to provide, blessing and happiness. It's what secures their future so that they're not anxious or worried about it. It's all about the money and what they can buy with it. Their happiness and their security revolve around money. And we can often see this in how we think. We often ask ourselves the question, what if I had a million dollars? And we begin listing all the stuff we would do if we had a million dollars, and then we see how much it would all cost and decide, well, maybe I really need two million dollars. And then that list grows even more and more, and we decide that we really need ten million dollars, and eventually we decide that we just need to be billionaires to accomplish all the stuff we want. It just grows. And this is the insatiable nature of mammon. Mammon is a god that is never satisfied and is a God that never satisfies the desire of the heart. What do people with large amounts of money want? More money. And why? They get money with it. They have power to obtain what they want, yet they soon realize they want more. And when they've obtained, that all needs to be maintained. 
And so they see that they lack, and so they pursue more money. And when they have it, they do not have the happiness that they think it will provide. So the answer is get more money. And it does not relieve a person of the troubles, but it only intensifies the inordinate cares of this life. And the funny thing about the love of mammon is that mammon has no love for you. It does not satisfy the desires of our wicked hearts. It only intensifies them. When we have more, we want more. And it drives us into every form of sin as mammon is driven by idolatry and covetousness. The Bible teaches us that every good and perfect gift is from above. God opens up his hand and he satisfies the needs of every living being, every living thing. And this is true if we have much or if we have little. And so often we receive the gifts of God that provide for the body and life and we choose to worship the gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. And so this is how our desires become so disordered. We do not desire and worship the God who gives the gifts. We just desire and worship what he has to give me. And we misplace all of our affections so that God is entirely forgotten and the pleasures that he freely gives are worshipped as the ultimate good. We love the material stuff that God gives and we despise the one who gives it. And in this way, mammon becomes a terrible god. It can drive every decision we make in life as people will pick up and move their family at the drop of a hat if it means more money. They will do so without even thinking about where they are moving or if there's even a decent faithful church there to attend. Many people will skip church if they can get time and a half on Sundays. Men will devote their time and efforts to gaining so much more money that they neglect their families and destroy their marriages. Young adults will put off marriage and procreation because they see opportunities for better careers that pay more money. Women will despise motherhood so that they can have the opportunity to make more money. Actually, the abortion industry lives on that promise. It's driven by that promise. If you kill your baby, you can improve your finances. And pastors will despise their calling. Why? They think they can make more money somewhere else. They will not live in their calling as the men who are the shepherd, the flock of God, and to speak his holy word, regardless of what people think of him, so that their salary will not be jeopardized. The ways that money can drive us away from God and the things that he calls good are innumerable. They are so numerous, and we often follow after money and its promises without a second thought. But God assigns greater value to you and your life than mammon. You're more than a dollar amount to God. You are more than a quantity to God. You have greater value to God than a financial portfolio. You are a creation of God that has been formed in his image. And in this, you are the objects of his joy and affection. The great value that God assigns to you and your life is not measured in dollars and material goods. Rather, the value God assigns to your life is measured in blood. As you have been purchased by God to be his precious possession. St. Peter says, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And Paul teaches, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And he also says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. You have been purchased, you have been bought, you have been redeemed by God. With nothing other than his son. And so what does all this mean other than you have been redeemed or purchased by Jesus? Luther says this in the explanation of the second article of creed. He says, Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from all eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. God has assigned such a high value to you that he saw fit to pay a steep and painful price to make you his own. Mammon possesses men through dissatisfaction and false promises. God possesses us through the suffering and death of Jesus. One will always be on the take. One will always make demands of you. One will never satisfy your heart, while the other can only be given to you out of steadfast and perfect love. And so then, we have no reason to doubt that God will provide for the needs of our bodies. And why? Because of what he's already given to us. As St. Paul puts it, what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so then, as we live by faith in what God has already given us, we do not need to worry about our future or our needs. We do not need to live in anxiety because our future before God is secure. And why? Because we live under the care of the God who loves us so much, who has created us in his image and purchased us from sin and death with nothing other than the blood of his son. Your value to God is greater than your dollar amount. Your value to God is greater than the possessions you accumulate in this life. Your value to God is centered and based around the death and resurrection of his son. And this is why Jesus tells his disciples to not be anxious. He tells them to not be anxious about tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow is in God's hands. He uses the example of the birds and the lilies. These are creatures that are created by God. And you can almost imagine Jesus pointing to the things around him as he's sitting on the mountain, as the disciples hear the sermon. And he gestures to the birds and the lilies so that the disciples see these things living before them. You can see their simple beauty. They can see the provision that God makes for them. The birds are fed in the natural order that God feeds the birds. They do not worry if there will not be any worms or seeds to eat tomorrow. They simply rise with the sun and eat what is there. And the lilies are not concerned on whether or not they will be beautiful. God simply bids them to grow and blossom, and they are absolutely beautiful without a thought. Jesus does not ransom birds and flowers. 
These things beautifully live in this creation. These things are created by God, but Jesus does not ransom birds and flowers. They are here today and gone tomorrow, but he does ransom you. And so these simple creatures are provided for by God, even though they have little value. Yet you are the eternally ransomed children of God. You are the ones of such value to God that he would give his dearest treasure to secure your eternal life and salvation. And so he will also give you a food. He will give you a house. He will give you clothing as you need it because he loves you. That does not mean that we should not work to earn a living, try to live in a budget, have a savings account, plan for retirement, have insurance, have a nest egg for emergencies. The Bible says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. But what it does mean, that even though we may do these things, they do not secure our future. In an instant, these things can be gone. Like that. It can be over. Employment, wealth, can all be stripped away. They can vanish. The dollar can be devalued. The priorities of the world can shift. And every possession that we have in this life can turn into nothing. Yet the words of Jesus still ring true. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That means nothing other than that we find our rest, our comfort, and our hope in Jesus Christ alone. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is to put the reception of the gospel first. For no other reason than that is the single most valuable thing you receive. We ought to value the gospel the most because it is what you need the most. We are sinners. Sin is what destroys us. It is what kills us. It makes us into nothing. It drives us into hell. No matter how much mammon a person may accumulate in this life, you cannot purchase your way out of sin. You are powerless to defeat it. There is only one gift that saves a person from sin's curse and the devil's power, and it is not gold or silver. It is only the blood of Jesus. The gospel is the only treasure that we have in this world that will endure beyond this world. And what does this mean? Well, it means the gospel is the one thing that we should cherish and value above everything else. We should be willing to forsake everything to ensure that we have the gospel of Jesus in our lives. When something begins to drive a wedge between us and the promises of Jesus, that thing is something that we should willingly and joyfully set aside. That is something that should be despised, counted as evil, or cast away. What does God say about gold and wealth? In the book of Revelation, we see a description of the new creation, the new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. And you know where all the gold is? It's not being stored up in vaults. It's not being uh, used to adorn people's body and life. The streets are paved in it. It's trampled underfoot. It is the same as the dirt and the gravel that we walk upon. And why? 
because it will never be as valuable as we think it is. Not nearly as valuable as the righteousness of God that's given to us in Christ Jesus. And that is why we are called to value the gospel above everything else. Today in our closing hymn, we'll sing uh, the hymn, Lord, as thy wilt, deal thou with me. It goes, Lord, as thy wilt, deal thou with me, no other gift I cherish. In life and death I cling to thee, oh, do not let me perish. Let not thy grace from me depart, and grant an ever-patient heart to bear what thou dost in me. It's a beautiful hymn, and it's a beautiful message of living trust in the God who loves us. It asks that God do whatever he desires for us so long as we just don't lose the gospel. This means that we're willing to suffer discomfort, loss, we're willing to suffer sorrow so long as we do not miss out on one of the greatest, the greatest gift and treasure we possess. It was written by a guy named Caster Bienemann, and Caster Bienemann was a brilliant pastor during the later parts of the Reformation. He had reached one of the highest positions that a man could at that time. He was a doctor, he was a professor, he was a superintendent. That's kind of like um, a district president or a bishop would be today within the church. He was a leader in the church, respected by princes, looked up to by the people. He was even sent on delegations to the Greeks because he knew Greeks so well. He likely had a good salary, he had a nice life. Yet when he was asked to compromise on the gospel for the sake of political peace, he had to resign it all. He lost his position. He lost his superintendency. He was basically left with nothing. He was a gifted man with no calling. Eventually, the Duke of Saxony saw what was happening to him. He felt sorry for him, and he gave him a job tutoring his children. And so you got to think about this. This once great bishop, this leader of the church, this great man was reduced to a person with having two little children as students, a prince and a princess. And the young princess was only three years old. This wasn't college classes that he was giving. And that's why and where he wrote the hymn. He wrote it for Princess Maria of Saxony when she was only three years old, and he taught her to memorize it. And why? so that she would grow up to know the great treasure of the gospel. Maria grew up to be a princess, and she used her wealth to establish schools that taught the word of God, and every student in those schools learned this hymn, and it became her motto in life, as she would continually say, Er du wilt. As the Lord wills it, it will be done. The gift that we cherish above all in this life is the gospel of Christ. Caspar Biedemann did not lose the gospel. He lost position, he lost fame, he lost wealth. He even actually ends up losing this job as the tutor of these two children. He did not lose the gospel. That was not stripped away from him. This is what assigns value to us as human beings. This is what makes life joyful. It's nothing other than that Christ loved us such that he would give his life for us. 
It is not vain pleasure that can be purchased with money, but it is the enduring gift of life in the name of Jesus. And this is of infinite more value than anything that money can buy. There is no pleasure in this life that can surpass the assurance of God's love and forgiveness found in the gospel of Jesus. And so we cherish this treasure above all. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness by lifting up the gospel of Jesus and setting it above everything else in this world and this life. We make it our chief joy, our pleasure, and our delight as we live in this world. And as we do so, we are blessed. And in that blessing, we live in confidence. We live in comfort. We live in assurance that the same God who gave his son to die for the sins of the world will give you food. He will give you drink. He will give you a place to lay your head at night because he is a gracious and merciful God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, lift up the cross before our eyes so that we may see its perfect beauty. Help us to know that all the needs of this life are given by your open hand. And let us never despise the gift nor the giver. But above all, help us to cherish every good and perfect gift and the light of the gospel of your Son, our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith and the life everlasting. In the name of Jesus. Amen.